Welcome to episode 15 of Ask Alex on the OneOuter.com podcast with me, Barry Chalmers, and Alex Assassinato Fitzgerald. How are you today, Alex? I've got quite a bit of a chest infection, so I'm, I'm, I'm not sounding too good. I'm going to try and let you do all the talking this time. Uh, for, for a change, normally I can't shut you up. But, uh, <laughs> no, I'm doing, I'm doing good. I, I don't have a... I'm not ill in any sense, but I've been doing tons of hand history reviews prepping for scoop so i don't know i when i'm trying to formulate sentences this morning it's like it's been pretty hard so i'm hoping i wake up right now yeah yeah well we'll wake you up um on that note last time i just remembered when i i sort of was editing the podcast we forgot to do story time oh we forgot story time we'll have to put that in I, so I'll have to put one in this time. I think I burned through my really good road story, but I probably have a, I probably have a couple more I can think of. If yeah, I, if yeah. I really, you got one prepared? Uh, I, I think so. I don't. If I've said it already, you can remind me. All right, uh, I will. Oh, that's always yeah. such a buzzkill. Two minutes into a story, uh, hey, hate to tell you this, but uh, I know how this one ends. Yeah, we've heard it. <laughs> um, okay, a few parish notes. Um, we have a few, a couple of guys emailed me about the free fifteen pound, asking if it was still on. Um, that offer from William Hill is on and still further notice. So, um, all the details are on the site. You can either get free fifteen pound cash, or a free fifteen pound Amazon dot com voucher, is the way I'm doing it now, rather than me send you guys books and stuff like that. So, just set up a William Hill account, deposit a minimum of fifteen pounds. Use one podcast, O-N-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, as the promotional code, and then just send me an email, barry at oneouter.com, and I'll get your £15 uh, to you in either cash or an Amazon voucher. Uh, I noticed something from you this week, Alex. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about your your idea for your scoop videos? And oh, stuff? yeah, sure. So we're... Yeah, we're going to try something. I, I don't really think it, there's a precedent. I, I don't think it's been tried before. But I wanted some motivation to be really focused, and uh, I've been recording my sessions just for my own record keeping and also to send to my friends, uh, especially the ones who do buy pieces of me in the bigger tournaments. And uh, I, I just noticed I played a lot better. My timing was much better. I felt really in the zone because I just had to set an example, whereas normally I'm just kind of playing and having fun. But uh but I, sorry, the dogs were running around my feet, or not running around my feet. They were, they were, they were posing for me, so I got oh. kind of off track. But uh, it, it, they, uh, I decided, you know, I'd really like to do this through the whole scoop because I think that would really demand that I play my best. And I thought, well, it's kind of stupid for me to keep my videos just on my, you know, in my hard drive when I'm sure a lot of people would like to see them. So. I picked some nominal fee. I picked $50 because I expect this to be a bit uh, 
uploading probably 50, maybe 100 hours of video is not exactly super easy from Costa Rica. So it might take a few days to a week for each each video. I might have to upload just like the deep runs at first and then fill in the gaps. But yeah, I thought this would be a fun way to give back to the fans with also, uh, you know, obviously it does well for me. And uh, on that note, we're also going to be trying on Twitch.tv to be doing a lot of hand history reviews uh, for free, uh, my friends and I, just to give you an idea of what the analysis would entail. Uh, The live videos are going to be mostly me three and four tabling uh, maximum, just because I really want to focus right now. And I don't know. I don't really enjoy massively multi-tabling anymore. I don't really feel like I have the edge like I used to have. I feel like people have really caught up to me in that department, whereas when I play less tables, it's a lot more fun. So I'm going to be playing less tables. I'm going to be playing most of the Hold'em events. Uh, I'm occupied on Monday nights, and I think there's one Saturday. Uh, I have to go see a project of my wife's. But other than that, it's... uh, probably going to be playing most of the Hold'em events and Scoop, and for $50, I think, uh, I mean, I kind of just picked a price. I'm pretty sure if I charged 150 a lot of people would have bought it, a lot of the same people, but I, I I wanted something that could reach more people, because it is a promotion tool as well, you know what I mean, to give people, mm-hmm. and it, it's something for kind of, you know, if you don't want to pay now $210 for an hour of coaching, <laughs> you know, yeah. now you can pay 50 and get like a 50, do- 50 hour introductory course. And, yeah. and then, oh, and I'm going to be playing the low stakes ones as well. I know a lot of people were really excited by that. Uh, me playing yeah. the 20s and 10s and stuff like that. Well, that'll be interesting to see how, you know, everyone thinks, ah, oh, these tournaments are full of fish, etc. And so someone like yourself that really knows the game and has, has played high-stakes MTTs, seeing how they sort of negotiate these massive fields uh, would be interesting. So just in summary, for $50, uh, if people want it, uh, what do they get? They get every video you do for this scoop. I, I'm going to try to record from, like, literally from when I boot up the tables to when I finish. Because it just, okay. I don't know why, it makes me have way more fun. And uh, so literally every hand I play in scoop, you will be able to watch with my analysis. I'm going to be talking over. There might be times like there's so much action going on. I have to, you know, hey, uh, just let me play for a second. But uh, I'm going to be putting that up. And I also think I'm going to be marking hands throughout. So let's say we don't get uh, let's say we don't get to really flesh out a hand. I think on Twitch.tv I'll do like a review session where I go over all those hands and I'll record it and probably mm-hmm. probably throw it in. Yeah, I'm going to throw it in with that bundle. And then you can, you know, it, it's a lot of content. Actually, it's kind of stupid. I'm not charging more the more I think about it. But I, eh, you know, it, it seemed like a fun thing to do. That's pretty much what I focused on, not really the money. Yeah. And as you say, if it makes you sort of stay in the zone a bit more as well, you're probably getting a bit back there as well. Yeah, so. there you go. Yeah, really good point. Yeah. yeah, I yeah, I thought about, you know, maybe like 200 or something like that. But I was like, ah, you know, I kind of want the, you know, the Latvian grinders playing 25 NL and being able to yeah. being able to afford this, not just, you know, my high stakes buddies who probably have already seen all this crap before. 
So if people want to get involved with that, how do they go about it? Getting oh, wow, great, great. Stuff wow. Like Amazing point. Yeah, you can already tell I'm a little tired this morning. Assassinautocoaching at gmail.com is how you contact me, but I think I just gave you guys all the details. You need to send $50 to either Assassinato on PokerStars. That's ass, ass, I, uh, the letter I, as in Ic- Icarus, and then NATO. And uh, the location is Costa Rica. The logo is a white uh, Japanese symbol on a black background. Uh, you can send the $50 there or alexfitzgerald88 at gmail.com on PayPal or Fitzgerald underscore Alex at yahoo.com on Skrill. And it's the Assassinato on Full Tilt. And you send your $50, you get your proof of your transfer, you send it, and then we put you in the email list for all the new videos. And for the next couple months, you get private videos from me. And if you want, follow me on Twitter, at The Assassinato, or Facebook.com slash Assassinato, and you, the details will probably be replayed again and again in case you're not quite sure how to spell your particular option. Yeah, and I'll also, when the podcast goes live on oneouter.com, in the actual blog post with the podcast, I'll put details of this offer that Alex is doing and how you can get in touch with us. Ah, good point. So that's what you've got to do when you put up some money for a podcast. I see. Yeah. I got it. I got it. I I always just kind of think of this as, I don't know, it, it sounds like BS, but I don't really consider what I if I start thinking of this as work, like obviously on some level I realize this is work, but if I start thinking about it as work, I'm not – I don't really have as much fun with it and then the product isn't as good. But I kind of just think of this podcast as something like, you know, like this, this is really fun to do and it brings in a few more people and, uh, you know, I, we, we put up the money for the web hosting. Obviously, you put up much more than I do because it's your site, but, you know, it's like, it, it, it's weird to think like, oh, yeah, this is like an advertising vehicle, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I got <laughs> to take this seriously. Yeah, well, I mean, they get to ask you questions every, you know, time we do this for free. Right. Uh, in inverted commas, and if they want things and offer it, it's like, nobody need, nobody's forcing anyone to pay $50 to buy the videos. Nobody's forcing anyone to... Uh, set up a William Hill account, you know, and do things. And the, the podcast's free. You can listen to it for free and keep listening to it for free. And, you know, it's we keep doing them. It's We don't exclude anybody. There's no passwords to get these or anything, you know. Just just now until we reel them all in and then just jack the price up big time. <laughs> then then get, get the, like, the eight people that are diehards and charge yeah, them like two grand them. a year. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, if you guys know a sponsor that would really like to help this show pay for some of its costs, pay for some of the bills, you know, get in touch with us. We've, uh, you know, we, we, we could, we're doing all right on ourselves, Barry and I, but, you know, it's one of those things, like, if we, it, we would like to work with other people as well, because it doesn't really seem like radio exists without collaboration in some sense. Yeah. And while I'm fine with, you know, this just being about me and me and me, you know, we could always... Uh, if we want to take this a little further and you guys want to hear a few more of these and you know somebody who works at somebody you think would work well with us, don't don't be afraid to get in touch with us. Yeah, we'll we'll sell out to anyone. Yeah, like I'm, a, I'm a sellout. So. You know, that's what my critics say. He sold out, you know, so it's, <laughs> it's, uh, 
I'm a, but I'm I'm here. I'm ready. That's it. So uh, on that note, uh, we will get straight into questions. Yep. Um, again, if you guys want to email questions in for the next show, just email questions at oneouter.com or tweet at oneouter.com on Twitter. That's at o n e o u t e r d o t c o m, and uh, I'll I'll put these to Alex. And we'll put one more thing. One more thing. This just crossed my mind, but there's something I've always wanted to say to a lot of the people who told me I sold out. It's your damn fault, okay? I really love letting people learn about poker. I think it's a great game. And, I mean, there's none of this consideration in any other strategic game where money is involved. It's, uh, you know, you're just trying to flesh out the material available to you. I know there's much more money. But uh, there was a time I had a lot of money and I helped out every single one of my friends. And then when I didn't have money, pretty much nobody helped me out. You know, I wrote an email to a lot of people, and I got the, yeah, you know, no thank you. You know, I offered to pay people back with interest, and yeah, I've, I'm, I thank you all for doing that because I wouldn't be so happy now if I hadn't put this business together. But just remember, you had a chance to help me out and to make me just play poker again, and you didn't do it to all you high-stakes guys who give me crap about how much I talk about and most of you all didn't come up with this before I did, so you acting like you created it is bullshit. So, anyway, let's continue. Yeah, that, that was straight to Doyle Brunson, you bastard. We know, I'll, I'll name him. You know? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I'm still friends with a lot of these people, but, you know, I hear, like, well, the funniest thing is they don't even say it to my face. It's just like, oh, so-and-so is mouthing off about how this doesn't work anymore after because you put it out. And I'm like, well, yeah, like my most dead basic concepts after three years don't work anymore. But that's also called how the game works. You know what I mean? Yeah. I remember when Unexploitable Jams were like the, the new thing. And then DJK posts a, something about it. And, you know, he's heralded. Because, you know, everybody has such a love affair with DJK, but because I don't have the same credentials and because I'm a bit more of an asshole, if, and a lot of people I just assume I didn't come up with it, if some of my concepts get out and they don't work as much, it's I ruined it. You know what I mean? Yeah. When I, I have the PowerPoints and crap dated three years ago, and if you talk to the real heads in poker and you tell them three years ago you were doing this, oh my god, I only got this one year ago. But, yeah, yeah, I have the chip on my shoulder. This is what Jared Tendler identified in me. He was like, you have a real serious problem with a lot of people. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know. I, just my thing. Just keeps me going. That's it. You use it. Use it for, uh, for good. Yeah, the dark side. But anyway, continuing. Yeah. Okay, the questions. Uh, the first question is from Sholto. Um, Sholto. Yeah, S H O L T O. Oh, wow. That's yeah. a different. Yeah. Uh, hi, Barry. Just a short question. I would be interested in Alex's analysis of. Uh, I am going to add some progressive knockout tournaments into my schedule. Would be really interested in Alex's views on optimal strategy for playing these progressive bounty tournaments and where you have to think differently from standard MTTs. Thanks, Shelto. I have no idea. I've played like two or three in my life, but it, it, this is the thing. Whenever it's, uh, again, this is one of those things when I've reviewed, uh, when I've talked to people about progressive knockouts who actually know what they're talking about, 
Uh, I'm not going to claim to be an authority on the matter, but most of it, a lot of my gut instinct ones seem to be correct. But it, the way I do it is I just add three big blinds for every are not three big blinds. Uh, it, it, like it, that's not really a good way to estimate it. But add a couple more big blinds in the pot to your implied odds when you're looking at calling all ins. And pretty much whenever it's a close all in, if it would be a close all in in a normal tournament, you should probably just call in a progressive KO because there's a lot of money you can't really quantify that's in the middle there. And uh, don't be afraid to, like, just a lot of the times if you do the ICM and there are, uh, you know, go out there and find the products. I don't, I'm not really familiar with which what. I had I had a friend of mine model it with Sid and Go Wizard. It looked pretty good. And then uh, we modeled, ah, God, there was one more. I think it was, I don't know if it was ICMizer, but I think, but, uh, you know, when they modeled it, we found a lot of the times you put someone in with like nine, two off and it was essentially a free roll, like given how much the price you were getting, but we were watching people like fold like a seven in the same spot. But the big thing is none of this really comes intuitively. Like it, the, the way the human mind works is if, you know, if for your whole life when you've put people all in with 9-2 offsuit, it's gone horribly wrong, it's going to be really hard to override your mind to yeah. get it to do something else. So you have to do the work aside from it. And this is a lot of – I didn't like a lot of the bluffs I had to start doing to get better in poker. But if you work through the math 20, 25 times and you see it's the same result every time, you're going to get over it. Uh, there's this book called Thinking Fast and Slow. It's something I just started. Uh, I think it's super popular right now on Kindle. But it was, uh, you know, it's a guy talking about, you know, what your brain does really quickly and what your brain has to think about. And something uh, researchers have found is the human mind is awful at functioning statistically, like intuitively. So don't assume you're going to know what to do in these progressive knockouts right away. This is kind of why I've not played as many of them is, uh, well, one, they always seem to be at weird times. And uh, two, I didn't really feel like I had a great feel of them, and I knew intuitively I would trust my intuition more than most players, but I'm sure I'd be making a catalog of mistakes by the end uh -huh. of a tournament. So, you know, just I would say you got to really love the work. Like yesterday I went over almost a 1,000 hands of another empty tears. And, uh, you know, no one's paying me for that or anything, but I have to, this is how I have to prep for scoop. So maybe do a couple hours of just going through some progressive KOs you've played or if, and uh, see if you can find a training video where someone talks about it and look up all the forum posts. You know, the great thing about poker is it's, you know, it's really an investigation. It's really... Uh, no one's really holding you back. No, you're not going to go to the gym and then, like, lift the weights and they're going to go, well, I guess you just don't have the muscle uh, fibers to build muscle here, really. So start doing steroids or get out of here. <laughs> Most of the stuff in poker is pretty – this is from some guy who, after eighth grade algebra, the school politely said, we're not going to make you finish the math most people have to finish you've hit your prerequisite, and you can move on. Hmm. And uh, I find this delightful. It's really fun to get into this stuff. It's eighth-grade algebra. It's really simple. It's, uh, or no, after 
ninth grade, and then tenth grade I got D's, I think. But and then I was done with math. But anyway, in the, most of this stuff is eighth grade algebra, and it's really easy, and it's actually really fun once you start going deep in tournaments and you feel like, wow, you know, that three or four hours I put in on another day really came through. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the next question is from Patrick. Uh, hey, guys, looking at playing exclusively turbo tournaments, as I just don't have the time to sit and grind standard uh, time MTTs. I figure I can get more volume in except for this way. What's your advice for changing to these exclusively? Probably on stars as my computer hates every other software. <laughs> All right. Is Patrick Scottish, by the way? Uh, I don't know. I don't know where he's from. Damn it. I mean, the Patrick. country is so small. Shouldn't you know everybody? Not yeah, yeah. I, I don't know him personally, so... I don't know where. I Damn just, it! I just got Patrick here in my notes. All right, can you hear me? All right, I got a little yeah. feedback. Yeah. All right, as long as it sounds good on your your end. Uh, the big thing with turbo tournaments is you got to learn how to raise fold effectively. Once I learned that, and I taught, I don't really enjoy turbos. I don't really. Here comes a super arrogant statement. I don't really play poker for the money much anymore. I'm doing fine, but no, when I I I don't. When I play poker, I want to play standard speeds because that's kind of just what I have more fun with. But I did have to get, like, literally hundreds of guys good at turbos uh, between a bunch of different backing stables in order to get... Essentially, if I got them going, my percentage of that company was going to be pretty substantial. And if I didn't get them going, the difference was going to be quite a bit. So mm-hmm. I, uh, I I put together a game plan, which I've now... Uh, since a lot of people pirated, I put it together in a webinar just to make my own money from it. You can still buy it for $99. It's called Why Pythagno is Right. And it's all about those 8 to like 18 big blind stacks and all the edges people don't find. And it's about small three bets and it's about small race folds. But the basic thing to focus on, uh, I, I don't want to send you to a product that you have to pay for. The big thing to focus on is what you're risking. Let's say you risk 2x, then you divide it by everything that's in the pot. So you make it 2x, and then there's the big blind, and then there's the annies, and then there's uh, the small blind. You put it all together, it's like 4.4x. So what you would do is divide what you're risking 2x by how much you're going to win if the play succeeds. So 4.4. And that's going to give you... And I, that's going to tell you how often your play needs to work as a complete bluff, as a, without cards. If the person ever flats, if your hand has some equity versus some small all-ins, this is all just adding up equity. This, will, this is how I taught sit and, uh, Turbo Sid and Goes. And to be honest with you, I didn't really have any experience as far as Sid and Goes. I played them back in 2006, 2007. Uh, just to, you know, pay my bills. But uh, because I didn't really know much about poker and sit and goes were really easy back then. But I didn't really feel like I knew much about them. But I also didn't want to go to the standard sit and go training, training tools because I felt like they were going to teach me what everybody else was going to be doing. And I was going to have this like break even stable on my hands, which is actually there's nothing more variance intensive than a break-even or 5% ROI stable. 
So I, I tried to do it this way, and it really worked. We kept, uh, in a time where every other backend stable was breaking up, we, like, we were growing, and it was working really well. And uh, to flush it out, you do have to like, get all right with the math. The, the big thing being, uh, and uh, this is kind of hard to explain over the radio, but you'll have this one percentage that says, like, okay, this is how often all the people behind you need to fold. Then what you need to do is open up Flopzilla or uh, any hand-ranging tool. Uh, it, what, uh, what was that old one? Poker Stove. And there's a <laughs> Poker Stove, yeah. <laughs> and then there's the one that the Poker Strategy kids use, uh, Poker Strategy Equalizer or whatever. But, yeah, and you put in all the hands you think they're rejamming with or calling right, and you remember whatever's left is their folding range. So if they're playing... Uh, this percentage of the hands, let's say they're playing 20% of the hands, that means 80% of the time they're folding. Now, let's say the other guy behind him is playing 25% of the hands. That means 75% of the time they're folding. So now you have these two numbers. Okay, 75% of the time this guy folds, 80% of the time this guy folds. And you know you need this play to work 44% of the time. Well, does it work? Well, it's just eighth grade algebra. It's like multiplying fractions. It's literally, I, I'm pretty sure Chinese kids learn it in the womb. It's pretty easy. <laughs> it's like it's 0.8 times 0.75, and, it'll, uh, and you will get how often combined they both fold because you're combining both of their folding percentages together. And if that number is higher than what you mathematically need to raise fold uh, with no cards, then it is almost impossible to prove that is unprofitable is what i found i mean you could possibly lose money post flop but if that's the case just you know identify whether your raise pre-flop is profitable and then if somebody calls just fold if you flop quads and you won't even be losing money on the hand because the only investment you made showed a profit and a lot of people say like okay well this is really close you know, a lot of times it's like, okay, I need my play to work 46% of the time. When I multiply their folding ranges, it's like 49. Well, you've got to remember, if you're playing blackjack currently, what all those movies are based on, all those guys making money, you have like a 1% edge. If, you're, if you have a 3 5 10% edge in these spots, that is monstrous. Now, yeah. you do have to... Now, you do also have to surround yourself with the game. You have to watch, like, great sit-and-go and tournament players, see when they consider, like, ICM. Uh, You've got to remember the chips you're risking are worth more per chip than what you're going to gain. Going from, uh, like, going from 10 to 8 big blinds is a much bigger blow than going from 10 to 12 big blinds. So uh, it, it is beneficial for you. So you've got to make sure... It's really important the Annie's in play. Otherwise, it really kind of throws off your risk-reward ratio. And, uh, yeah, and a lot of it is just practice. And put on your uh, put on your HUD, fold big blind to steel and fold big blind to small blind steel. In my experience, if people are folding a lot to steels, your biggest problem is going to be the big blind, especially back in the day people never played from the big blind. So you could just rob people blind raising all the time into 17x or something and uh because people just considered it sacrilege in order to uh in order to call there and to not jam or fold uh now you got to identify who is a caller 
if they call, you need to go to the next logical step, which is what is their full to see bet. If it's 60% or higher, I, I hear people complaining, like, oh, the games have gotten tougher because people flat from the big blind. I'm like, I don't know if you recall, but back in 2004, the games were awesome because everybody called from the big blind. And they just check-folded the flop, which is pretty much all anybody does from these stacks. You tell me the people who can check-raise fold from 16x, and I'll go, yeah, I know Pasagno too. But there's not many guys who can do it as a bluff. There's not many guys who can check-call light and then fold the turn from that stack. So if they're flatting you from the big blind, that's fine. You just have to identify, do they fold on the flop a lot? If they don't, then great, just value bet for all your chips, uh, when you do hit, if they do fold a lot, just bluff everything. And your C-bet's going to have to be like 1.8x into like 4.6 or 5. It doesn't have to be anything because he doesn't have a check-raise fold. He doesn't, he's probably not going to peel very light if he's, you know, this disciplined player who's playing 24 tables. And, uh, and if the guy just folds his big blind a lot, congratulations, it's Christmas. And if they don't, just raise call wider, ace-nine off. It's all adjustment. It's all being passionate about it in the moment and really trying to find those edges and having a good time, trying to get better at poker, not trying to make money. Yeah, I, I would say, like, from when I played the, the Turbo Tournaments, the 180 Mans, I would say, yeah, you can get a lot of volume in, but also there is a lot of variance as well in Turbos, more variance, isn't there? Oh, a ton. Um, that, that you sort of go through. And, yeah, you can get more volume to try and, you know, blast through it, but... There is a lot more, I think, short-term swings and stuff with these turbo tournaments. Uh, everything is magnified. And um, like Alex says, there's a lot of nuances where people normally just jam them, you know, 12 big blinds huge. They think they can only go all in or fold. Um, but like Alex says, if you use the HUD correctly, there's lots of little places you can min-raise and stuff like that. And guys are just multi-tabling. They're just folding and giving you chips, you know, in these situations. Yeah, and, uh, um, oh, you really got me. No, keep going. I want to let no, you no, talk, that was it. I want to let no, you talk. That, I'll let you out no, of your that, cage. No, that was it. You're that's, out. All I can, that's all I can remember that's from my like two years back in my head with it, the 180s. Uh, yeah. <laughs> nah, they were great fun. I Actually, that was the most fun I had in poker. Um, yeah? Play, play, yeah, the 180s were just, I, I did enjoy them, you know, yeah. uh, playing them. And, you know, I, I was like 20 tabling them, stacking them. And uh, it was just banging through them. And they were good because you could log on, you could play a session for like two, three hours and then stop, you know? Right. When I was playing the MTTs before it, it was like sometimes seven hours for fuck all or, you know, oh, yeah, or, man. you know, whatever. So the turn, the turbos, I understand what this guy's saying and maybe he doesn't have the time for the standard ones. I know what you said that, you know, the purists want the standard play and stuff like that, the standard clock, but... The way online's went with Rush and also everybody's uh, impatience with the world basically to sit for still for five minutes. You know? <laughs> um, t- turbos do seem to like you know it, it's sort of the way it's going you know online. Oh, it's true. It's true. And uh, you you brought up a lot of thoughts. Yeah, one of my my one of my favorite times in my poker career one was when I was nineteen. I went into MTTs and I had some success and it didn't. But then it started not going so well. When I went back into sit and goes, I was just crushing. And it was so fun to play for like three, four hours with some of these newer MTT concepts. And yeah, hopefully make a bunch of money and then, you know, run out into Seattle and, you know, 20 different independent movie theaters and, 
you know, 40 different ethnicities of people and all the different food and all that fun stuff. But I realized I wouldn't, as you were talking, I realized I wouldn't have had that time if I hadn't, like, explored other types of poker. I also had another time when I was, I, I mean, I probably had a good nine months in Seattle where I was living out of, like, shithole apartments, you know, and, like, I was doing so bad, my uh, girl at the time, like, threw my ass out of my first one because I was just such a bitcher and complainer. Or not really, it, my roommate. Uh, but, it, and then, uh, you know, it, it, it was, like, it was really painful because I wasn't really opening my mind and I wasn't, uh, I wasn't studying. I wasn't, once I started getting into training videos and working a lot and, you know, also trying to explore things outside of, poker you know what i mean like going to like di going to do different things with like my different friends from different cultures and having fun with that i started really having fun with it and that's when i you know i got i got to move to south korea and do all the fun stuff that i always bring up as opposed to the you know nine months being pathetic getting kicked out <laughs> of my apartment <laughs> but uh in, in I, I've been reading uh this book while well, i read it uh it was called the art of learning by josh weitzkin it was the kid who was the focus of the book, the movie I've never seen called Searching for Bobby Fischer uh, oh, yeah. uh, about a chess prodigy, right? And this guy, the way he writes about it, – it, it, it's kind of a misleading title because it kind of gives you the idea it's going to be a – it's going to be an instructional book about how to, uh, uh, how to learn. But really it's more of a zen meditation on the guy's career and how he uh, came to really enjoy learning. And one of the things he talked about is when he learned chess, like first he started learning in like uh, New, New York Central Park, and he had to play timed games. And yeah. he was playing with crackheads a lot of the time when he was in, with like in his teens. And there'd be people screaming, and there'd be drug deals going on, and a lot of crap going on. And he had to move fast, 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 right? And then... He would split his time between that and going to, like, the palaces in the Soviet Union to play against these supercomputers that never speak and complete silence while he was playing. And he felt that made him more versatile because he had to get used to a bunch of different environments. And then later on, he becomes a world martial arts champion in another discipline. So it seems like it curbed his mind to be ready to other challenges. And I think in poker, you really need to... A lot of people say, like, if you want to make money, you know, like, buckle down, go into one game and really get into it. And I think that's fine, but you have to really be, I mean, if you study five hours a week, I don't think that's a lot. I really don't, but you'll be in the top 0.1 percentile of professional poker players because most of them just want to play. And there was a time playing you know, if you were an intuitive learner, you could make a lot of money. I didn't study anything my first few years uh, it, when I was a kid because I just wanted to play. But if you study, you, you know, and you really open your mind to the problems and really try to see every angle. I was doing a hand history yesterday, and I, I, I saw a problem I've seen probably, I wouldn't be surprised if I've seen it 50,000 times in my life, but because I had the time to look at it, I realized, oh, this could be a really good defense. Like, if you do this, this could be a really good defense. But if I'm in the heat of the moment, there's no chance in hell I'm going to think of that. And mm -hmm. if you want, if you're just playing poker for fun, you know, 
really spend some time like going into one form of poker. But if you only have a couple hours to play, don't be afraid to, you know, okay, one day you're going to load up like 20 different turbos and you're going to really grind it out. Another day you're going to play four different turbos and you're just going to see if you can pick up more spots. And then if you can go through the hand history and find like no real mistakes. And then another day maybe you'll just play uh, – it, it, once you start feeling more competent with tur- uh, turbos and like, oh, I'm doing really well at this, maybe you start one day a week, you throw in PLO, or one day a week, you throw in Rush Poker, and, or one day in a week, you play dominoes down at the city center, or some other game, you know what I mean, to get you thinking about different ideas, or you're going to study great game players from other fields. That's the kind of stuff I really think leads to mastery and leads to the, you know, the difference between the guy who makes 25K a year playing poker, like living off of rake back, constantly pissed off when he's at a tournament, he's mumbling around. He's three months past when he needed a haircut and he's not, he's not shaving, he's wearing his hoodie and he looks pissed off about everything and he's bitching about all the uh, other uh, recreational players. And the guys that actually make a really good living from this and are, you know, get to live the life that maybe would have been really hard. They would have had to immigrate to some country and study for six, eight years in order to get. <laughs> On that, have you seen the Bobby Fischer documentary, Bobby Fischer Against the World? No, I've heard I've heard it's... Uh, it's good. It's on Netflix. It's oh, really yeah? Good. i got to check yeah. it out. I got yeah, it's really good. I have Costa Rican Netflix though, so I have to. If they haven't oh. made the Spanish subtitles, it won't be there. But hopefully, it's there. You can get that. Uh, what's it called? Hula or Hula thing? Oh, uh, Hulu. It's got yeah. Some thing is your IP, so you can log into the American Netflix and UK Netflix and stuff like that. Oh, very cool, man! Netflix is just owns the world now, man. <laughs> like, yeah, it it's does. over. <laughs> I know. I know. Cable is dead. <laughs> Pretty much is. Yeah. Uh, Alright, the next question is from Carl. And uh, paired flops, question mark. Especially, now, this one came in on Twitter, so I need to read this one because he's obviously only got 140 characters. Right, right. Uh, so, uh, paired flops, question mark. Especially MTTs when Hero raised three bet, th- raised or three bet preflop, mm-hmm. both in and out of position, one to three villains. You're vulnerable to being check raised, etc. So I take it he's saying, what's your sort of take on dealing with paired flops, especially in an MTT when you raise or three bet pre flop? Now this is a great example of what we were talking about in the last question. Uh, uh, you want to learn when you're learning about a game. It's not good to just play. Like if you want to become a tennis professional and you have a really bad backhand, you don't just go out for six tournaments and waste four months of the year having a bad backhand you go you hire a trainer and you work on your bad backhand for 12 hours a day if you want to be a tennis pro and this is something like i really applaud that sorry i'm a little sick sick as well (coughs) this is something i really applaud about him is he has one board he feels like i'm not playing this well and he's seeking professional advice and he's seeking to study it that's great this is what great chess professionals do they work on just the end game you know just queen versus queen i i mean king versus king versus pawn and stuff like that and they widen the number of problems that they feel they've really explored and they put it all together as opposed to just playing and hoping for the hell 
you know, I hope I get into some flow where everything goes right. Now, the paired board is interesting because there are guys who never believe it, and then there are people who just, they've been burned a couple times, and they're just going to believe whatever you do. Uh, now, in the perspective that you're the better, the first thing is, do you need to bet? I assume we're bluffing here. I, I assume we're not discussing... Well, well, we'll start with a bluff. We'll start with you miss the board. You miss the board. First of all, you've got to visualize the stacks. If you lead and he check raises to a normal amount that's within the wheelhouse of most professional players, are you going to be able to three-bet back if you find it suspicious? Are you going to be able to jam? Are you going to be able to do something? Or is he going to really checkmate you? If you don't have a plan beyond that, you have to really be careful about whether you lead there. Now, this is where the check race statistic is like cheating. You know, I'm talking with a lot of like high stakes guys right now trying to get my game up to snuff. And with some of the best players, like uh, Never Scare B and I are friends. He's not, you know, I can't get him on. I, he, he coaches me, but I, I don't want to let him know that he's doing it because he might charge me if he knows. Right now he thinks we're talking as friends. But anyway, he's coaching me a lot when him and I talk about hands. And I, I'm teaching him some HUD stuff, but when he gets into the, he gets into the facets of stuff that is just like really hard to quantify, and it's going to be really hard for you to learn. This is not one of those things. This is really easy. If the guy's check raise is five percent or lower, or ten percent or lower, that's probably the hand. That's usually now once in a while he could have a bluff, but it's not something he does normally because. The check-raise board is the most cla- – I mean, the paired board is the most classic check-raise board you can imagine. That's one of the first check-raise boards a lot of people like. If some guy really likes check-raising, it's really odd he would lay off this all the time. And he would need to lay off of it almost all the time in order to have a check-raise of like 5 or 10%. Because about one time out of 10, you're going to have a good enough hand to check-raise, bloat the pot out of position. Now, if it's 15%, that's pretty balanced. That's hard to identify. That's when you have to be kind of a savant and understand where, where it's bullshit. And then, but if it's like 20% or higher, that's really suspicious because if you think about it, you know, connecting two cards to three, uh, you're not going to have a hand good enough to check-raise blow up this pot one time out of five. So it's really likely when this guy sees you as weak, he's going to come over the top. So if you don't have another play beyond that, you don't want to lead out. You might want to look at his donk turn versus miss flop seabed, and if that's in the 70s or 80s, you can just come over the top of it on the turn. This is something I've seen Stevie444 do really well. Like, he knows the guy's not going to believe his flop out, so he checks back, and then the guy leads the turn, and then he, you know, he wakes up and raises with nothing, and it looks exactly like he hit his hand. And uh, that's the, it, but it's kind of like thinking ahead on that part. And if the guy check raises, but you have a three bet, you might want to induce that because really the real continuation bet is going to be the three bet. So there's a lot of times I see a guy has a check raise of, let's say, like 25, 30%. That means like this guy's a gamer. He likes to come over the top, right? Well, I'll lead out for like one third the pot because I want him to check raise. And then he check raises, and the second it's out there, you just really stylishly, like you've been playing limit poker for years, you know, announce your bet and, like, just slam out, uh, you know, cut out the chips. 
and it hmm. looks like you planned it. You know what I mean? And there's not many guys who can four bet full. There are a few, but you don't find. And a lot of times the stack size is such that if he's going to want to prove you're full of shit, he's going to have to jam. And most guys just don't have that in them, especially live. So you, in, you can also do this another way. You don't have to slam it out there. I just like to do that to exert my dominance. But then also after the guy folds, I always go, damn it, how'd you know? And then they think I'm the biggest idiot on planet Earth because I telegraphed my hand, which is much better than being a poker professional, by the way. You want them to think you're like some spoiled rich kid who like just crapped himself with the trips. And uh, they, uh, you know, looking at it from that format is really good. And then you can, let's say you have a pair. Let's say you have like nines on like a jack eight jack board. You know what I mean? Uh, look at its check rate stat. If it's really high, are you prepared to bet get this in? If you're not, perhaps you should check back. If his check raise is nothing, be fine with bet folding. Don't feel like you got bluffed. A lot of people go, oh, my God, I got check raised on a paired board, and I had, like, a really good two pair, you know what I mean? And there was a draw out there. Like, let's say it's jack eight jack with two diamonds. It's like, oh, he could have nine ten. He could have, like, a, two, uh, a diamond draw. Well, ask yourself, with these stacks, does he do that with a diamond draw? If he's got a check raise of 5%, I guarantee you he's not doing it with a bare diamond draw. He might not even be doing it with a nut flush draw. He's probably, you probably just ran into the jack. Now, you can either call here, call turn, and fold river, and then bemoan your bad luck, or you could just fold right now and live with it. When you guys check out my video for just $50, if you write assassinatocoaching at gmail.com, you will notice I bet fold a lot. I bet, I bet like three streets for value and then get shoved on for only, and I get 3.5 to 1, 4 to 1, and I fold because there's just no chance the guy's bluffing. This is far beyond a lot of people because they don't want to, it's not because it's like some, uh, it's not like it's some, poker skill that's really hard to attain it's just uh people don't like seeing reality on reality's terms and they have this perception of every time they fold they get beat one way of exploiting your opponent's range is to fold you are exploiting people consistently when you fold that's why guys like tommy angelo can make such a great living they did, you know folding a ton or david sklansky who's just supposed to be the biggest nit ever he folds <laughs> he folds a ton and, I, I mean, our Alan Kessler, who has been around forever and had tons of final tables, I mean, that guy's supposed to be the biggest net ever. But it, you can make a lot of money just folding and getting people to overplay their hands when they do finally get them. So I think we crossed a lot of things there, I think. Is there anything specifically about paired boards you'd like to hear me address, Barry, that I'm not thinking about? Um, no, I just I just think it's an important thing in terms of, like you say, check the stats and... You, when it's that, it's it's easy to talk yourself into being bluffed, and it's almost that spike call or spike get it in to show that, or either show, yeah, I fucking knew you had it, you know, like that, or <laughs> just to see, just to see if they were bluffing or not. It's the curiosity, so just probably be check your curiosity sort of thing as well. Leave that at the door and uh, just just follow the hard numbers, you know, yeah. like you say, it's the only thing that's that's real, like you say, reality. Everything else is in your head. Yeah, you know? exactly, trying to separate. And I'm, like, one of the most pessimistic people I know. I'm not much anymore, but, like, coming up, I was uh, uh, perhaps because of my bit of colorful history, 
I didn't really think the best of people, and I had a really hard time folding, which is really bad in a game like Hold'em, where you really don't have anything most of the time. And it was really good in 2007, 2008, when everybody played really weak, but eventually it caught up to me. But yeah, if you, if you start working with the HUD and like reviewing hands, reviewing hands constantly, it's amazing how often you know, a number will say the guy's going to have this hand most of the time, and then you see somebody, one of your mates, go against it, and like nine times out of ten he's wrong. And it's like, well, I guess this stat's not full of shit then. You start trusting it. You start building a new path through your brain. But the other thing, let's say your check raise bluffing. Look at your sizing. Remember if you're check, uh, this is something I just thought of. If you're check raising to the size of the pot, your bet needs to succeed 50% of the time. That's not that much. Most people, when they see bet into a paired board, are not defending versus a pot size check raise with 50% of their C betting range. Especially if they, if they three bet like 12% of their hands, they're bricking 60% of pair. On pair boards, especially if it's rainbows, a rainbow pair board, 70% of the time they could not have a pair. And a lot of people don't have it in them to do anything with ace high uh, with, when they're check raised to the size of the pot. They're probably just going to think you're some idiot who overplayed your slow played kings or whatever. And mm-hmm. furthermore, you're the idiot, okay? There's this new article I published on Bluff. This one's free. You guys don't have to pay for this one. But it's, uh, I, ca- I called it Be a Dumbass. They changed it to something else which I thought was much less intriguing. Uh, oh, they changed it to playing people, uh, which, yeah, I don't like it. But, you know, <laughs> I send them the whole article. They have to change the title, you know. They, yeah, oh, there we go. And then, but, uh, yeah, and it's just about they're, they're not ashamed to fold at that point because you're the guy who check raises the size of the pot, and that's like sacrilege. I mean, the kid with the hoodie zipped around his neck, and, you know, playing his iPod and it was Beats headphones doesn't agree with that. So it must not be good poker. You know what I mean? And you're, you're just an idiot. I can fold to this. I don't look stupid. A lot of people don't like folding because they look stupid. Now, th- this is a good reason for check raising very small. If you think the guy's going to get into an ego war and three bet it back to you, then you can four bet and make it a little bigger and kind of checkmate him. But always visualize the stacks. You can see an example of me botching this at uh, San Remo. I think it's the only hand on of mine on YouTube. But uh, I was trying to set up a four-bet bluff versus Constant Reichenberg, and he just jammed for 12x the size of the pot or something and owned me. But y- you, can, uh, you have to visualize the stack sizes ahead of time. And don't be afraid to check-raise to weird amounts. If you check-raise to... If you're about to do the typical check raise, but you realize a really small three bet is going to put you in a is going to put you in a place where you have to jam, uh, and you think the guy's really capable of that, if you increase your check raise size, a lot of times it's not even going to have to work more than eight or ten percent more of the time. But if the guy's in total checkmate, uh, the guy's not going to do it, not going to be able to do anything. I think in chess they call it Zugs Wang, but I don't know how you pronounce it. Because I've only read about chess, I can't play it or anything. But fascinating stuff. Yeah, definitely. The, the, the comparisons with poker. What's the guy? Is Jeff Sarwar as well, isn't it? He was like a chess master. The guy on the EPT. He plays a lot of the yeah. EPTs he was uh, stuff. Yeah, he was the guy who uh, he went against the guy in uh, the Art of Learning. They put 
I, yeah. I think of the book searching for I, I think of the movie searching for Bobby Fisher the guy they have Jeff losing but in reality they tied and it just happened uh, in the tournament the kid was ahead on points or something or mm-hmm. I, I I don't know how it works but yeah Jeff yeah. Jeff would. Jeff is cool. Jeff is cool. That's uh, read the art of learning, man. Uh, for as balanced of a person Jeff is right now, it's kind of crazy what he went through. It's yeah. it's uh it's some heavy shit. Yeah, I read a bit about that. Uh, you read not, it? not the not the book, but I've read stories, you know, and interviews and stuff like that. Yeah. Um. All right. The last question is from Philippe. Hey Alex, do you set goals? And if you do, can you share yours for this year and how you're doing on them? Okay. Um, let me think. Well, immediate answer would be no. Uh, what what I do is I find I'm too neurotic. For most poker players are good because they're kind of neurotic people. I think maybe a lot of people don't like that word, but I, I think a lot of successful people just happen to have some neuroses. You know what I mean? They uh they they feel like if it's out there and they're not doing it, they're somehow a failure. And that's not really a good way to live life, I found. <laughs> you know what I mean? It kind of goes down. It kind of drags you down at some point. So, you know, if you have, like, you have to first ask yourself whether you have a natural drive or not. If, you, if you're naturally one of these people that can stay busy all day and got, get a lot of stuff done, you might not be getting the right stuff done, but you're one of those people who just can't go to sleep at night easily if they went, well, all day I played PlayStation. I, I could only, reason I smoked weed for years is if I wasn't smoking weed, I was like, I have to work on something. This is, you know, like, th- this is bullshit. You know, all my friends are struggling, and I have this winning lottery ticket. What, what, the, what the fuck am I doing with my life? You know what I mean? But uh, I don't find that's a really good way to live your life. So what I do, uh, what, what I do is, first off, you should write, like, for lack of a better term, like, a mission statement. What is it important you embody? You know what I mean? What are your values? What what is important that what kind of person do you want to become? Like what per, kind of person do you want to look back on your deathbed and you want to say, well, I did that. Most people's answer is not going to be, I made a lot of money. You know what I mean? But you can, uh, if you want to see an example of this on my blog, Poker Head Rush, uh, you just uh, just Google what's important to you, uh, Poker Head Rush, and I wrote down a lot of my like not my mission statement, but like what's important to me? What are my goals over my life? And then that's kind of something to have as like a reference. And then uh, something, you know, and then if you're kind of going wayward for a week and you just happen to pass by that and you look at it, you're going to go, hey, man, this is not what I set out to do in my life. What am I doing? Uh, The other thing, and – the other thing I do is I used to keep a to-do list through the day, but I felt like that stressed me so much because, honestly, the amount of work I could do in poker that could make me money is feels like it's endless. When I, I wanted to buy my first house and pay for my wedding and get a car for my wife, I literally could I, – I was like, I wonder how many lessons I could book per day. And I got up to eight per day for a couple of weeks. And uh, 
obviously that wasn't really good for myself. Uh, mo- <laughs> most of the students didn't really notice anything, but I was kind of going nuts. But like a lot of times in poker, there's no end to the stuff you could be doing. And then, be- and then I was stressed all the time because it's like, oh, you know, I'm like, I'm making money with lessons, but I'm not learning anything new. Then I'd go back to studying. And then I was like, I'm studying. I'm not making anything. I'm not playing. Then I go back to playing. I'm like, I'm not really happy about this because I don't really feel like I have an edge. And I, you know, this isn't where the money is. And it just becomes this endless cycle of stuff. So what I do is I make a list of like, okay, here's a list of like life things I need to do. Like, and you put down everything that needs to get done. If you were in a good question to ask yourself is like, if I could snap my fingers and this would be done on a scale of one to 10, how happy would I be? And then put that number next to whatever you wanted to do. So like one of the, one of the things for me was like building an addition to my house. Like I had to help out a lot with it and hire people and, speak in Spanish and have bad construction workers and good construction workers and dust all over my house and a lot of crap going on all the time. People trying to rip me off on materials and just a lot of stuff I don't enjoy. I don't enjoy working with my hands, but I focused on the, when this is done, how good am I going to feel? Well, the answer was like a nine because now I have an area where you know, my wife and I can work out if we don't have enough time to like go to the park or something. And there's a, there's a wait, new waiting area outside of my house for my wife's patients. Uh, whereas before her business was kind of linked with my house and they'd have to walk right through my office and my, but I just focus on that number. Like how satisfied would I be? Right. And then the next thing to do is how difficult is, and I know this is a overwhelmingly complicated answer, by the way. You're all probably thinking I'm nuts at this point, but if you want to succeed, you do have to be complicated. It, it has nothing to do with intelligence. I can say that with full security in my heart. But you do have to be a little neurotic. Now, put a number next to one to, fi- one to five next to that. How hard is this, right? And be honest with yourself. And honestly, you should turn off this podcast right now and do this list before you hear the next part, because I think the next part will influence how you do that number. Now, and don't be afraid to put on like, you know, like what are things like my hero would do? Well, my hero would call the family more, but I really enjoy that. That's not really a pain in the ass. How, how much would I like this if I, if I could do it, if I could snap my fingers and it was done, uh, calling my mom every day, that's a 10, uh, how hard is it? Not, I like my mom. She's a good person. You know, she doesn't nag me. Uh, okay. So I put a one. Now what you want to do is, uh, you can tie this into poker and you have this list of things you need to get done. You have these lists of like traits you want to embody. And this gives you a framework. You know what I mean? And then you can put poker things. Like I want to examine this part. I want to do this. Right. And what you should do is when you play a poker session, you got to record errors like this was baseball. Like when you clearly knew something was wrong and you screwed up anyway, right? If you want to read more about this, there's an article called Effortful Mastery. I think it's coming out soon. But uh, keep looking for it. And you want to record your number of errors, right? And if you're going to go against something you know is against the grain, if you're wrong, you have to record it as an error. 
Okay, so you're going to start only going with your really intense gut instincts. And then at the end of every session, you'll have a number of errors. And then you have to decide how you're going to get rid of them. If there's like, and uh, another way that's better than this, if you have like a five error day, like I had, you have to take on your huge project and not, you know, get everything rolling before you come back to the poker table. So one time I had a five error day and it was time to work on my house and it was time to do 12 hours of work. You know what I mean? Are my wife doing the work and me pandering around trying to understand the Spanish. But I, it was time to get that done. Or, you know, you have a two or three air day. Well, it's time to get the backup internet, so I need to go sit at the government internet place here because there's one company that does excellent internet, but it's owned by the government, so everything's slow as hell. And I have to go sit there for four hours. And what this kind of gets a lot of things out of the way that you know you need to do but are never going to come up if you don't have that. And then you want to have... Your daily goal should be, I want to be further ahead today than I was yesterday. You're not trying to beat the world. You're trying to beat the person of yesterday. The, uh, uh, there's this book called The Triple Package by Amy Shua. Uh, it's, a, it's about how it, they examine why like Nigerians and Cubans and Jews and Mormons do so well in America while a lot of other people are not. You know, they're proclaiming the end of upward mobility. It's done. Horatio Alger is dead. And what they found is these people are just disciplined. They don't, they want to get a little further ahead every day. Just a little further ahead. They're not living for the moment. They're not trying to get everything done right then. They're not trying to, well, let's play the 10K because it'll be the chance of a lifetime. No, they're working toward that. You know what I mean? And they're, mm-hmm. uh, they're, it's just a little more each day. And then there was another woman. She did a TED Talks on grit. Uh, her name was Angela Lee Duckworth. And she was examining, like, people who went into the Marines, w- uh, women who went into teaching, uh, kids at universities, all these kinds of people. And the ones, and they, you know, they measured IQ, socioeconomic status, race. They didn't find any of that shit really played into it. As much as people want to excuse themselves, what they found was the people that get better every day are, are, uh, are the ones that are successful. So you look at your list of like, what do you want to embody? Okay, you want to be healthy. Well, if you, you know, nobody's going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger the first day they set out to be healthy and go to the gym for three hours and drink a protein shake for lunch and no junk food or anything. If you drink three Cokes a day, how about just for today, you drink one Coke. How about that? And then if you had a bag of chips that day, the next day you don't have a bag of chips. And then the next day you still have a Coke, but you go for a walk for five minutes. Then the next day you still have a Coke, but you walk for ten minutes. And the day after that, maybe you can't get a walk, so you compensate by not having a Coca-Cola. Then soon enough... You're the weird guy who's eating really healthy and, you know, you find new things, you research what you want to be into and be into it, be passionate about it. That's another thing. It's not really cool to be an intellectual in a lot of groups. It's not really cool to be super obsessed about things. But I don't know someone who's successful who's not obsessive, compulsive, a little nuts. You know what I mean? And throughout the day, 
write down what you're doing. Write down what you did today. If it's helpful, have a friend you send it to who examines it. I do this new thing on my blog just for the hell of it because I've done it for a long time where I just write down what I'm doing each day. And I was like, you know, I have this in a Word document anyway, and I've lost these for a lot. I'll just put them on my blog, right? And then when it's on my blog, I don't really publicize it or anything. I just look at it, and I go, was this a day well spent? And it doesn't even have to be I'm working, but it's like, did I have fun doing something else? You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Does this look like a day well spent? And if you have to write down for someone else to read, either another friend or someone, I smoked weed, and I played Nintendo 64 for 10 hours you're probably going to be embarrassed. But if you just keep it on yourself, you know, it's really easy to let yourself down because you can, the human mind is amazing at coming up with excuses. So, you know, write down what's important to you to embody. Imagine, like, what you've always wanted to be. Write that down. And then just write, it's important to you. Don't write, I want to be this. And then just Mm -hmm. try to find little improvements every day on that front and with poker too you know it can just be 30 minutes of study but i'm not doing well at this i want to get better at this and if you're just a little better at poker every day you're going to become a monster at some point john juwando it was one of the first things i remember him saying they were like do you still learn about poker when he was just killing it on the tournaments and he goes of course i have to i'm a better poker player today than i was yesterday i have to do that has to be true every single day and yeah, and I mean, okay, let's see if I actually have some goals. I know that was a really long-winded. But I mean, like, uh, I had a goal that for, you know, I was going to... No, I don't really have, like, super defined goals, but it was like, okay, health is really important to me. And for, I went on a vacation and ate really bad. So when I came home, I was just like, okay, uh, the the way for me to always lose weight has been, like, cut out white starches, uh try not to eat too much fruit because I used to let myself eat as much fruit as I want and not like the healthy kind that cleanses you out, just the ones loaded with calories like bananas and stuff. But if I eat fruit, have like papaya or have like watermelon or something really good for you. Uh, If I'm going to snack, have just a couple almonds as opposed to like cookies with my coffee time and uh, not have a, not drink calories. These aren't like really big things. You know what I mean? These sound pretty easy, right? Like it's mm-hmm. not, you know, you just change your snacks. You just change. You don't drink calories. You just have water. Uh, you just don't load up on white starch. You don't have a bunch of bread. You don't have a bunch of pasta. And like with all these little changes, I always drop like 10, 20 pounds before like a big, like I needed to do this before scoop because honestly I was pushing to 10 or something And that's not going to be really good for my endurance. So, you know, in the distance, I have like 190 on my mind. But if I think about that, that's going to be really far off. You know what I mean? So I have to just focus on the little things each day. And then magically, I always get to the weight I want to. But that's that's an example. And then, yeah, uh, conquer the world. That's the other goal. Anyways, (laughs) sorry, that was a long answer. No, it's good. It's all, it's all good. I mean, everybody's... The one thing I would say is sometimes I remember reading the thing, if you write down goals, your brain can actually equate it to that you've already accomplished them. It's the same as telling people. You know, if you tell someone, I'm going to write a film script or whatever, some people, they act, they then take... It has the opposite of effect. They then take their foot off the gas because they feel like... Because they've talked about it and said it to the person, 
um, it kind of like takes the wind out of sails of actually doing it. And there was like a study or one of these talks on that, and it was like keep your goals to yourself until they're, you know, until they're sort of accomplished. Really? But uh, yeah, yeah. That makes sense because everybody in Seattle is about to become a writer. Everybody in Seattle is about to write a book. I used to say, yeah, I used to say like I'm going to write a book because it's so easy for me to write. Uh, like just about other things, I couldn't understand why it'd be hard. And like I realized, yeah, it was like, you know, just being the guy who's writing a book is makes you feel like you did something when in reality you haven't done jack shit. And then yeah. you're not focusing on the product. You're not focusing – when I finally – you know, and then I took like whenever I sat down to write, I was like, oh, I'm ahead of every other asshole who's not writing. And I, I threw the manuscript away for like two years because things got so heated up with poker – and then I read it, and it was like 700 pages, and honestly, like 600 of them were just stoned bullshit. And I had to, like, cut it all away. And, like, I'm pretty sure I could have realized this at any point if I just got off my high horse and stopped acting like I'm the writer and just said, well, I wrote 2,000 words today. It must be good, as opposed to just looking and going, oh, the product is crap, you know. I'm not yeah. – this is bad for myself. Like, who cares what other people think? Okay. Well, I think we should do story time now. Uh, that's us approaching just actually over the hour. So do you want to go first or will I go first? Yeah, you go first while I try to remember one. Okay, I, I don't think I've said this one. All um, right. We, this is about, well, let me think, probably about 14 years ago now. I was like Damn. 15, I think. Yeah, 15, 16, something like that. And uh, I went around with this older guy. He was a sort of mentor. Uh, sort of like he had, ran his own business. He had an Aston Martin car. Nice. And I looked up to him big time. You know, to say, like, I wanted that, you know, sort of thing. So we would sometimes go to, like, uh, you know, antiques auctions or flea market boot sale things, like, for a look, etc. And we went to one not far from where I stay. And there was lots of, like, random items and pieces and I bought a few items of, like, militaria, uh, you know, like some medals and other bits and pieces, some army camouflage netting thing and this other thing. Um, and we got it back to the car, and I just put it all on the back seat, um, actually on the parcel shelf just above the, the back seats. And we headed to St. Andrews, and we had some lunch and stuff like that. And we were driving back home, and we saw hitchhikers. And I'd never, ever picked up hitchhikers before, ever. And the guy that was driving was laughing. You know, I was like, oh, come on, pick them up for a laugh. We'll see. And oh, it was like wow. a guy, I, it was a guy and a girl. And I was like, come on, it'll be funny. You know, I've never done it. Just, it was, you know, going to be a bit of a story or whatever. So we stopped the car, fucking Aston Martin, remember? <laughs> um, <clears throat> these two hitchhikers get in and they're on the back, you know, they're sitting on the back seat and we close the door and, I've got all the stuff, you know, that I bought there. And we're driving along the road, and they, I think they were from Poland. Uh, I mean, there's lots of Polish immigrants now in Britain and Scotland, but this is way back then when just a few, you know, started coming in. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm sure they were from Poland. It was definitely Eastern Europe. And uh, they were sitting talking their own language, and they, they just, I could still sense that there was, like, panic, you know, with them. <laughs> even in, even even though I didn't speak a word of their language, I was like, why the why what the fuck is like up there? 
And then these, I started speaking to them in sort of like pidgin English, broken English, and they were like, oh, you know, this and that. And yeah, could you just maybe drop us here? Like they wanted to get dropped in our bro, uh, yeah. which is not that far from where I stay. And they ended up wanting out early and stuff. So guy that was driving just like, oh, okay, I'll let you out soon. We stopped. So we stopped and like let them out. And they just like waved and we drove away. And now I'll tell you what the other item was I bought at the flea market. I bought like a decommissioned anti-tank bazooka thing. <laughs> and that, 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 that this like anti-tank full like if you can imagine a bazooka on a film, this is exactly what it looked like. Green, <laughs> heavy duty metal. It was real, apart from it had the firing pin removed from it, right? And it was like three pounds it cost. And we bought it because he owned shops and he wanted it for like a window display, you know, just for like to put in the window, like a bit of nonsense. And I was like, fuck, like, we forgot that was there. They were from some like country, they were maybe even from like Kosovo or something where shit like that would be real. And we were like, they've got into this car, fucking Aston Martin, and there's like a bazooka on the back seat, thinking like, what the fuck is going, you know, and so that was it. We just like drove, drove, uh, drove away. And we saw them looking like as really weird, you know, as we drove away. And they, they literally started hitchhiking again. When I look back, like about two seconds later, they were, they were like looking for another car. They just wanted out the car. It was fucking I hilarious. Your mentor was like an uh, yeah. SS scientist who was given witness protection, who hasn't let go of the old affiliation. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But that that was amazing. That was you could you could buy that for like three pounds. It was like a decommissioned like uh, anti tank or anti like bazooka thing that you actually pull. It still pulled out. You know, it extended oh and God. stuff like that. It was such a cool bit of kit, but it actually got stolen. It got put in the shop for a minute, and it got stolen, but it was a really cool bit of kit. You know, it looked the part. You know, it really did look the part. It's one of those goofy things to steal, you know what I mean? Like, where, yeah. where are you going to put it? Like, in your exactly. living room? Like, I know. Who's going to think of that? Okay, I think I have a story. All right. Here's one of my more... Okay. Here was one of my weirder moments in... Uh, so uh, this one's a short one since this one's going long. I'll tell a short one. So I go to Hungary, right, uh, to play EPT Budapest. And, like, honestly, top five cities I've ever visited in my life is Budapest. Like, I love that city so much. I don't know why. I, I love the climate. I love the river. I love the architecture. And the people were pretty cool, too. And since their language is fucking incomprehensible, a lot of them speak English politely. And I... And I was at this, like, I, apartment hotel place, and I went in, and there was, like, this pudgy girl, and she was, like, she was kind of cute, but I wasn't, like, into her, right? But I always, I always wanted to meet locals and, like, you know, have them show me around the city so I could, you know, like, actually get to know, like, Hungarians and where they hang out and stuff, right? So I'm, ta yeah. I'm talking her up a bit, right? And, you know, it seems like it's going really well. And she goes, you know, would you like to try Palenka with me? Do you know what Palenka is? No, I've heard it. It rings a bell. I'm okay. not sure what it is. Okay, she, she looks at me really coy, and she was like, I'd really like to try Palenka with you. And she looked at me kind of weird. Well, Palenka in Seattle is a sexual maneuver where a woman pisses on your face. 
right? Right, I don't, I don't equate it to that. <laughs> it's just something else well, I was thinking. So I freak the fuck out, right? And I'm uh, like, uh, 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 no. And, uh, uh, and, you know, I don't want to, like, run off. And I'm like, oh, my God, I really must misjudge this, right? <laughs> like, I am... You know, and I'm like, I, I don't want, you know, this chick might, because I was like, that's a fucking weird thing to ask somebody, right? The first mm-hmm. time you talk to them, and I was like, she might be off. She might like, I don't know, maybe she's going to piss in my food, right? Because I was getting <laughs> breakfast every morning from there, and I was like, hey, you know what, I think I, I'm supposed to, I, I, I don't know, I'll talk to you later, right? Like, I was like, I, I think uh, my friend's about to be up, and he doesn't have a key or something like that. I, I can't even remember what I babbled, right? So I go up, and I'm like, uh, and, uh, you know, I hang out somewhere. I, like, wait till I think it's the end of her shift, right? Because now I'm afraid to see her, and I needed to go play poker. Anyway, I come out. She looks at me like the most, like, dejected kid in the world, right? Like the, the one kid on Valentine's Day who didn't get a Valentine's Day card, right? And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with this person, right? And then I, like, I go out to a bar, and, like, I'm hanging out with my buddies, and it's like, hey, man, you're going to try this thing from around here. It's called Palinka. I was like, yo, what? Well, Palinka in Hungary is their national drink. It was like I was in Russia. Drink. Yeah, yeah. That's why I was thinking. Yeah, it's yeah. a drink. It's a drink. So she was asking me to the equivalent of, like, she was asking me out for a drink, and I looked at her like, I don't know, like fucking Free Willy just jumped into my hotel room or or something. Because she was kind of a fat girl. I didn't mean to like be a dick, right? Like if I knew what she was asking, I would have been like, yeah, okay, whatever. Right? And then it was like the most fucking awkward week ever because like you could tell she told all her friends, like this guy's a super dick and they always looked at me when I came in. I was like, and I didn't want to go up and explain it. Because it would have been ridiculous. Look, I'm sorry. Like, what was I going to say? Look, I'm sorry. I thought you wanted to piss on my face. Like, <laughs> it, it was just like, and then, you know, where, where are you from where that's normal? But, yeah, that was uh, uh, that was not a good time. So, um, no, I mean, golden showers and bazookas. It's pretty standard <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, uh, we said we before we started this, you were like, what episode is this? You went, this yeah. is episode fuck. And I was, like, yeah. I was like, yeah, we should just start naming them. Well, this one would be Bazooka and Golden Showers. Yeah, like, this would be episode 15, Bazooka and Golden Showers. That's it. All right, well, we hope you enjoyed that. We, Alec, well, we, the Royal We. Alex answered all your questions, and we uh, look forward to doing another one of these. So keep, keep the questions coming in. Uh, there always seems to be a varied, you know, selection of them, so that's good, and we're glad that you know plenty of you're getting stuff from them. Uh, I'll put the podcast on the website, and once you're listening to this, if you go to oneouter.com and check the blog post for episode 15, you will see details of how to get that uh, access to Alex's scoop videos for fifty dollars. I'll paste all the details there, so you uh, you don't need to decipher me or Alex's uh, accents, and you can see it. <laughs> You can see it in nice bold writing how you can get them for fifty dollars, which seems an absolute bargain to me. Um, you know, for for that, if you're saying that amen, amount of hours, I mean, it's it's ridiculous value there. So, uh, hopefully, a few few of you can get access to that. Um, until the next time, thanks for listening, and we'll do another one of these shortly. Cheers. <laughs>